I'd like to introduce our speaker for this evening, Joseph Lallyveld. Joseph Lallyveld's worked at the New York Times for nearly four decades, reporting from India, South Africa, Congo, Hong Kong, and London, as well as Washington and New York. From 1994 to 2001, he was executive editor of the newspaper. His book on apartheid, Move Your Shadow, South Africa, Black and White, won the Pulitzer Prize for general nonfiction in 1986. He holds degrees from Harvard and Columbia's Graduate School of Journalism. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Joseph Lallyveld. Well, every now and then someone asked me where I first met Mahatma Gandhi and what it was like covering him. What I, uh, while I have to admit I'm old, I'm not that old. <laughs> I was still in grade school when the Mahatma, that unique and uncanny combination of pilgrim, philosopher, social worker, pamphleteer, religious seer, crank and tough politician, all packed into a single taut human frame, was gunned down in a New Delhi garden in 1948. Those questions probably boil down to, what was it like covering Ben Kingsley? <laughs> well, I, I haven't covered the Oscars either. Nevertheless, I feel a personal connection to this story, and I have to say that I can't help thinking of it that way as a story in the journalist's sense of the word. What I bring to it are questions planted in my head decades ago when I was living and working as a correspondent in both South Africa and India. Questions about how his years in South Africa shaped Gandhi as a leader and about the yawning gap between his social vision and goals and those of the next generation of Indian leaders, the politicians I covered, who claimed him as their prophet and their inspiration. I spent seven years in those two countries, seven years long, long ago, augmented in the last few by three trips I took to India and two to South Africa as I made my pilgrimages while working on this book to the sites that were important in Gandhi's life. In a small, insignificant way then, my path has followed his. He lived in South Africa between the ages of 23 and 44, fully one-third of his adult life. These were the years of transformation in which a prosperous immigrant lawyer became an ascetic and finally a mass movement leader of some slight international renown. The renown, of course, was to only grow after he returned home. The challenge I set for myself was to get beyond the notion that South Africa shaped him to an understanding of how that actually happened, how the preoccupations he took on board on one subcontinent played out when he finally returned to the other. The short answer is not too well, at least not as well as he allowed himself to hope and expect. India revered him, but hasn't always followed him. That's actually an understatement. Few, if any, figures of the last century have been the subject of more books than Gandhi, but I th think I can claim to have uncovered a compelling story, perhaps even a tragic story, that has always been there just below the surface in uplifting accounts of the Indian independence movement. The story of Gandhi's largely unsuccessful struggle to graft a set of social reforms and egalitarian values, which he gradually worked his 
towards which he gradually worked his way in South Africa onto an India that managed and still in some measure, measure manages to simultaneously revere him and ignore, even reject, some of his most urgent teachings. That in a very general way is my theme. I have to admit up front that I am not a wholehearted devotee. The checklist of Gandhian causes and preoccupations is pretty long. It runs from vegetarianism uh, with a kind of adjunct to, to mastication. He thought it was very important to chew your food slowly. To nature cures with mud packs, to celibacy, and I'm into none of that. Never have been. <laughs> also, I'm not religious. You might say I'm a reprobate. Still, I consider Gandhi a great moral example. What fascinates me about the man, what I think will continue to fascinate future generations in India and beyond, is his own restless striving, his persistence in his quest for selflessness, what I find myself calling his moral ambition, his conscientious attempt not just to achieve a transfer of power from an entrenched imperial ruler, but to change a society from the inside out and bottom up, to be the agent of that change through his own discipline of sacrifice and reflection. Freedom would come, Gandhi said, when the lame begin to walk and the dumb begin to speak. When the lame begin to walk and the dumb begin to speak. By his lights, a freedom from which the poorest, most despised of his countrymen were excluded would be no freedom of, of, at all. So-called freedom, he called that. Among the pillars of the independence he sought, pillars being his word, were the removal of the social oppression of India's untouchables, the outcasts whose mere pre presence was said to pose a constant threat to caste Hindus of pollution, and more generally, the uplift of the rural poor, touchable or untouchable. In other words, I've tried to take Gandhi seriously as the social reformer he meant to be from the time he left South Africa to the end of his life. It was a life that involved a continuous process of self-creation, self-challenging, leading to new demands on himself, a readiness to use his own episodes of failure, about which he could be brutally candid, as goads to new rounds of striving. It's not unreasonable to think of it as a saint's life, but that's not my angle. I'll be amazed if anyone labels my book Hagiography, hey though the Wall Street Journal came close to doing that. I'll be less surprised but equally dismayed if Indians with their own strong feelings for Gandhi find me excessively detached or skeptical in the way of journalists. I have to admit, I wasn't prepared at all for more negative and extreme readings of what I wrote. For instance, that of a, of a volunteer reviewer on the Amazon site who who writes of my burning hatred for Gandhi. It's hard to believe that person held, held my book for even two minutes. Gandhi's soul won't be available in India till next week, 
But already, as you may perhaps have heard, it has been banned in one Indian state and the legislature in, the, in, a, in a neighboring state has, has called for its banning. Uh, uh, this is all as a result of its treatment of Gandhi's friendship with a Jewish architect in Johannesburg, uh, a discussion which went viral on the internet before anyone had seen the book, leaving me to protest as best I could that there's a case of mistaken identity here. I am not the Joseph Lelyveld who wrote a book on the secret sex life of Mahatma Gandhi. <laughs> Some other fellow. I'm the Lelyveld who wrote or thought he wrote a book on Gandhi and his struggle for social justice in India. In fact, the book does show that it would be easy to caricature Gandhi's close friendship with the architect is as sexual at some level, but concludes that it was celibate, which is a side issue anyway. What I try to demonstrate on the basis of Gandhi's letters to his friend, Herman Kallenbach, which have been in the public domain for nearly 20 years, is that, that it was a loving relationship and very important to him. Having just spent three and a half years in Gandhi's company, immersed in his life and times and many thousands upon thousands of his words, his collected writings now come to 97 or 98 volumes. That's collected, not complete. Having immersed myself in all that, I can testify that I like and admire him even more at the end of this journey I imposed on myself than I did at the outset. My central theme, what I actually meant to be the focus of the book, is strongly suggested by the preposition in the subtitle, by its underscoring of Gandhi's struggles with India rather than as it might have been for India. In his heyday, when he first seized the country's imagination, Indians by the millions came close to deifying him. They understood that he cared for them in a new and different way. Gandhi protested against the divinity that was being thrust upon him, saying that he was of the earth, earthy. What that self, with that self-definition in mind, I've tried to fo follow him at what I call ground level. The intellectual and tactical stages of his transformation are reflected in the sartorial makeover he began in Johannesburg around 1911 or 12, when he eased himself out of his law practice, a costume change, and out of the tailored British clothes uh, that were appropriate to a lawyer of his status, uh, a costume change he'd gradually phase in until finally, about 10 years later, he'd stripped down to the loincloth and shawl that would be his unvaried apparel for the rest of his life and would cause Winston Churchill to characterize him as a half-naked fakir. <laughs> Robert Payne, one of his biographers, more aptly calls it his symbolic disguise. I wish to be in touch with the poorest of the poor among Indians, Gandhi himself said. It is our duty to dress them first and then dress ourselves, to feed them first and then feed ourselves. The story as I tell it departs at various points from what I call the received narrative, nearly all of which is traceable to Gandhi's autobiographical writings churned out as a series of articles for his weekly newspaper, Young India, in the 1920s, 
when he'd been back in India scarcely a decade and still had more than 20 years to go in his life's journey. Here the chapters of his earlier life were turned into parables for the benefit of those who soldiered in his movement. In the process, these invaluable texts simplify his story. He was a more complicated, divided man than he sometimes let on. Witness the fact that this great apostle of nonviolence who inspired our own Martin Luther King and other leaders of the civil rights movement saw service in two South African wars as, leaders, as leader of detachments of non-combatant Indian stretcher bearers, or that a few years after his return to India, he offers to serve as a recruiting agent for the Viceroy seeking to raise Indian troops for British units depleted by the carnage in, in the trench warfare of World War I, a singularly unsuccessful campaign that ends with his placing his own list, his own name at the head of his short list of volunteers. At that point, he was 50 years old. Defeat and disappointment, he wrote at the end of one of his autobiographical collections called Satyagraha in South Africa, are unknown to those who commit themselves to satyagraha. That's the, his catch-all term, coined to embrace both his method and his doctrine. Satyagraha usually defined as truth force, or more literally, as firmness in truth. But defeat and disappointment were by no means unknown to him in India. I'll come back to South Africa, but first perhaps I should address the question of why Gandhi matters. For starters, because he fashioned the first anti-colonial mass movement of the 20th century, because he sought to achieve its ends by nonviolent means, promoting a doctrine not just of nonviolence, but of nonviolent mobilization and struggle, inaugurating a weapon that with very mixed results still comes into play in our own time, most memorably in recent months, in Cairo and Tunis, but also less successfully in Tripoli Tehran after the last Iranian election, or scattered Palestinian villages on the West Bank. He looms large also because more than any other political figure of modern times I can think of, he came to identify himself with the plight of the poorest, most abject shanty dwellers and landless rural laborers, who number today in global terms more than a billion souls. In today's soaring, prideful, turbulent India with its newly minted technology billionaires and lust for big power status, still more than 300 million. That's 300 million individual Indians in conditions the World Bank terms absolute poverty. If India has a social conscience, and I believe it does, that social conscience can still be called Gandhian. It is as, in his finest, most radical moments Gandhi nagged India about a suffering in, nagged Indians about a suffering India that's all around them and that many of them are conditioned from childhood not to see. Here was a man who moved a subcontinent but never for a minute held any government office in a public career lasting more than half a century. A leader who never bombed anything, never had to inure himself to any pattern of death and destruction, who almost invariably halted his campaigns the moment he got a whiff of what we've now learned to call collateral damage. He looms large, too, 
because of the modesty of his means, his distaste for luxury, self-indulgence, and wretched excess, his doctrine of what he once called meagerness, meaning that it's better to eat too little than too much in the hopes that others will get to eat more, to live simply rather than extravagantly, better for oneself as well, perhaps, as the world at large. It can sound puritanical, and it certainly was, but when we think of our own consumer society as well as India's consumer society in which greed and non-stop consumer spending are viewed as essential engines of what's worshipped as growth, where marketing becomes exalted as a basic social skill, Gandhi's way of looking at the world from the bottom up as an opportunity for a life of service may also occasionally strike us as common sense sensible, not to mention humane. Especially so now in the wake of the Japanese nuclear disaster and when we weigh the implications of climate change on a planet where the automobile is just becoming, for millions of Gandhi's countrymen and millions of Chinese, the aspirational need it has long been for us. It's on that other subcontinent in South Africa that his distinctive way of looking at the world first made itself felt. I argue that it could never have happened in India, that his remarkable self-invention almost required a different soil. Gandhi arrived in the Indian Ocean port of Durban in 1893 as a 23-year-old London-trained barrister with a retainer to assist in a humble capacity, essentially as a law clerk, in a suit between two Muslim traders from his part of Gujarat on India's western coast. He expected to stay a year. His final departure occurred 21 years later, less than a year after he had his emergence as a leader of a mass movement. In 1913, on the eve of the World War, Gandhi was still in South Africa leading a series of strikes on the coal mines and sugar plantations in the province of Natal. Thus, on his return to India, he'd had an experience no other Indian leader had known. This was a very different South Africa from the one in which he arrived. There were scarcely 100,000 Indians, the overwhelming majority of whom had landed in the country as indentured laborers under contracts of servitude requiring them to work on the plantations and in the mines for a set period, usually five years, during which they had zero civil or political rights. Gandhi called them, without exaggeration, semi-slaves. The young Hindu lawyer from London by way of Bombay was at the outset the only Indian lawyer in the land. In his first political ventures, he functioned as a mouthpiece for the ti that tiny class of Indian traders who were mostly Muslims. Some of his earliest political speeches were given in mosques. His basic argument, and that of course is not something that would have happened to a high caste Hindu in India. Uh, his basic argument was that his countrymen merited full rights as quote, British Indians citizens of the British Empire, although he generally omitted the indentured laborers called coolies by whites and by some Indians from that attempt at what might now be called rebranding. Indian is the proper word, Gandhi said, 
in his first nationalist, virtually the first political declaration of his life. No Indian is a coolie by birth. It's a lesson he needed to teach his own community as well as whites. We are not and ought not to be Tamils or Calcutta men, Mohammedans or Hindus, Brahmins or Banyas, but simply and solely British Indians, he said. If they wanted to be treated as equals in their new land, they need to learn how to treat one another as equals. A white editorial writer in Johannesburg had inspired this epiphany by asking how Indians could demand equality with whites if they didn't grant it themselves to all other Indians. This was the origin of Gandhi's discovery of social equality as an essential value for himself and a free India. So he struggled against white colonial overlordship in South Africa and British colonial overlordship in India. As he, as he struggled in this way, he found himself struggling with Indian culture and its social values. It all starts to happen in his first year in South Africa. Not long after the editorial, he receives in the mail the earliest tract by the, by the Leo Tolstoy, who late in life was radically recasting himself as a latter-day Christian prophet. Tolstoy strikes a deep chord, but Gandhi's transformation doesn't come all at once. I try in my book to trace the stages he went through step by step in South Africa till he arrived at a recognizable Gandhian view. He founds two rural communes, one called Phoenix Settlement, the other Tolstoy Farm. But it isn't until his last year in the country, 1913, that he finally embraces the cause of the indentured, enlisting these so-called coolies in this, those strikes I mentioned in Natal. Here we have the fully formed Gandhi who'd returned to India within a year, bringing with him an assortment of social goals and values that would become the pillars of the program he would try to graft on the Indian national movement he was soon to lead. You can trace each of his preoccupations with what he called Hindu-Muslim unity, with the fostering of strong, positive bonds between Hindus and Muslims, the two largest communities in India, with an end to untouchability and caste oppression, with the fostering of traditional crafts and cottage industries as, an, as his answer to rural mass poverty, and most important with nonviolence, to Gandhi's experience of South Africa, and then trace them through the final 33 years of his tireless campaigning and proselytizing in India to August 19, 1947, when India's independence from Britain is declared, and Gandhi has to recognize that each of the values that he said would be pillars of Indian freedom had been pretty much brushed aside, sometimes even trampled, by the movement he'd invigorated, led, and personified. On Independence Day, he's absent from the celebrations. Instead, he fasts. This is a sorry affair, he says. It's that outcome that I mean to foreshadow in my subtitle, Mahatma Gandhi and his struggle with India. With, if I may repeat myself, not for. Of course he struggled for India, but it strikes me 
that his story carries deeper meanings. I mean to be provocative, not offensive. My sense is that Gandhi's life ended tragically, not because he was assassinated by a Hindu supremacist, not because British India was divided along sectarian lines into two nations, Pakistan and India, that now face each other with missiles and nuclear arms, a vision that would have appalled Gandhi, one that at least he was spared, uh, although he did live to, uh, to, to learn of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And perhaps he, he sensed before anyone else that nuclear arms could come to the subcontinent for in 1947, he said, God save us from this atomic bomb mentality. That was 27 years before India exploded its first nuclear device. The tragedy of which I'm speaking is, is that he had come so far, achieved so much, and then he had to recognize that his dream of an independence that would be accompanied by a cleansing, ennobling social transformation was nearly as far out of reach as it was when he began. Gandhi's tragedy was also India's. It was, after all, a Hindu fanatic who killed him, as in not altogether dissimilar circumstances, it was a Jewish fanatic who killed Yitzhak Rabin, and Muslim fanatics who killed Anwar Sadat, two former generals, cut down for their own ventures in peacemaking. Reading the mind of India on his return from South Africa, Gandhi had transformed himself by embracing the model of a Hindu pilgrim, a sannyasi, the householder who reaches the stage in life in which he's moved to renounce family, possessions, the world, in order to seek his own spiritual enlightenment. The Gandhi sannyasi renounces possessions and even family, but not the world. He seeks to change it, to purify himself as a step towards reforming the social order. Gandhi wanted to train up a national corps of such selfless, self-denying sannyasi, one for each Indian village. In those days, the, uh, the usually accepted count of how many villages there were in the then undivided India was 700,000. It didn't happen, which is no wonder when you consider that celibacy was one of the prerequisites he, that he set out for the village workers he tried to recruit and mo mobilize. S celibacy, the idea that a spiritual seeker gains strength by taking the vow, has its place in Indian religious tradition. But so then does eroticism as demonstrated by Indian miniature paintings and tantric doctrines of sex as a path to spiritual fulfillment. Be that as it may, celibacy was only one obstacle to the fulfillment of his dream for India's poorest. In 1934, he actually went through the motions of quitting the Indian National Congress, the movement he'd led, because it paid little more than lip service over the years to his social program. He never rejoined, but to this day, the remnant of that Congress, now leading the governing coalition in India, continues to march under his banner. To my mind, Gandhi's story becomes truly operatic 
not with his arrival in South Africa, which is where Philip Glass locates it in his opera Satyagraha, but in his last 18 months or so, as now at the end of his eighth decade, he crisscrosses India seeking by dint of his own fearlessness and example and moral prestige to douse flames of what we would now call ethnic cleansing that would ultimately consume Hindu and Muslim and Sikh lives by the hundreds of thousands. For two months in 1947, he goes on a peace pilgrimage from village to village, walking barefoot through the paddy fields of a Muslim-majority district of East Bengal, now known as Bangladesh, hoping to prove that Hindus could live as a minority among Muslims and vice versa, that therefore there was no need for the country to be, as he put it, vivisected. Never was he more heroic, never less effective by any ordinary worldly standard. He then goes to the North Indian state of Bihar, where 30 years earlier he'd waged his first campaign on the subcontinent. There he learns Hindus have been slaughtering Muslims to the cry of Mahatma Gandhi ki jai, glory to Mahatma Gandhi. That discovery, showing how far short of comprehending uh, his basic message many of his supposed followers had fallen, understandably appalls him, makes him wonder in his darkest moments whether he has accomplished anything. These jai shouts stink in my nostrils, he then says. And still the old man trudges on. In the, his last months, single-handedly holding back the tides of ethnic slaughter by fasting in Calcutta and Delhi until finally he's murdered. The testimony of his assassin, who was later hung, stands as an unforgettable tribute to Gandhi's perseverance. A most, this is the quote from, the, from the, the, ma, the man who fired the fatal shots. A most severe austerity of life, cease, ceaseless work, and lofty character made Gandhiji formidable and irresistible, the killer testified, by way of justifying his deed. It was because of his lofty character that he had to be removed from the Indian political stage, the killer said. Otherwise, the new government would continue to favor Muslims at the expense of Hindus. At the end of his opera, Glass has Gandhi striding ever so slowly, resting on his staff to the metronomic beat of his music. In fact, he was still he was still walking briskly uh, when, when, the three, when the killer fired, th bending down as if to touch his feet in a traditional Indian gesture of reverence, fired three slugs into his chest. Bystanders, bystanders collected the dirt his blood had stained as a relic. Millions of Indians did in fact and, and do today grasp his values, mostly without his sense of urgency, but still that's something. But in a country of 1.2 billion people, several million, four or five million even, is less than half of 1% of the whole. It's enough to ensure that Gandhi will survive as an Indian prophet, 
but we all know what the Bible says about a prophet in his own country. Perhaps he sensed that all along. Back in 1915, just a few months after he returned from South Africa, he sent a melancholy meditation to his architect friend, Kallenbach. Here's what he wrote. I see around me nothing but hypocrisy, humbug, and degradation. Yet underneath it, I trace a divinity that I missed in South Africa. This is my India. It may be blind love or ignorance or a picture of my own imagination. Anyway, it gives me peace and happiness. So even as he struggled for e India, and if I may offer one last reprise of my subtitle, Struggled with India, we find him here at the outset, the get-go, saying he wouldn't have it any other way. This is not just an Indian story. Few human dreams and visions are ever completely fulfilled. Gandhi's dream and example strike me as exceptional and noble. I'd say the same of his failure. Maybe it's odd of me, but I'm more moved by this noble failure than his success. Thank you. What, what was his motivation for becoming a barrister in the first place? Uh, did he have a social justice, or was it just going to be business? I don't think so, no. I think it's quite clear that uh, he was sort of chosen by his family to go out into the world uh, and, and go to Britain, which was um, almost forbidden to people of his caste and status in those days because of all the temptations that uh, the West was said to uh, put before Indians uh, to go out in the world and uh, gain the capacity to earn a living that would support his, his, his extended family. And, and that was the idea. He then came home, after three years in Britain, he came home and, uh, and tried to set up a law practice in Bombay. It didn't ver go very well. He then moved back to his part of Gujarat and started drafting petitions. He wasn't earning much money. And, mm -hmm. uh, and then he got this offer to uh, cross the ocean again, and, and this time to South Africa to assist on this case. Uh, I, I start the book by saying uh, uh, it, it was a brief that only a briefless lawyer would have accepted. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, and when he got there, uh, just the drama of South Africa, its conflicts, its mix of people, uh, drew him into uh, a, a sense of, of, uh, of the looming injustice before his small minority community. He wouldn't have thought of himself as a member of a minority had he, he lived in, in, had he stayed in India. He would never have gained that consciousness. But, it, but in South Africa, he was definitely a member of a minority and, and not a particularly highly regarded one. So uh, it, it's that chemistry that, be, that begins to awaken the sense of, uh, of injustice and the need for social justice. I had a process question. Um, I, I was curious, since you were a correspondent in South Africa, um, 
does did, did that matter in terms of you're doing your research? And how did you go about doing your research? Were there still pe- were there people who had memories or I mean, sort of connections with with Gandhi or, or, or you know, what is is he still revered in South Africa? I just sort of interested just in general in your uh, your research and how you went about sure. it. Sure, I am at heart a reporter, not a scholar. So the idea of just going to archives and libraries uh, and not seeing the places I'm writing about was alien to me. And I can't, wasn't too clear in my mind what I uh, expected to find when I, when I went to these places, how that would help advance uh, my work, but I, I felt a compulsion to do it. I did meet some people who were old enough to have seen Gandhi as children, and they had a few memories, but you know, they by and large were just hints, shadows of, uh, of what went on in his day. Uh, and I, I did hear some hand-me-down stories, uh, but, but mostly just walking the ground kind of awakened my imagination somewhat to to get a sense of, of, of what his journeys and struggles were like. And in the course of that, I met uh, uh, a number of local scholars, both in, in South Africa and particularly in Durban, Natal, which was the heart and is the heart of the Indian community in South Africa, and, and in various parts of India, who, who had studied particular aspects of his career which uh, Gandhi sc- scholars in general glossed over. And, and uh, to become aware of these local studies was, was a great boon to my, to my work. Uh, the other thing was just reading closely uh, uh, Gandhi's own writings, trying to, not for the sake of novelty, but to come up with my own reading of what went on, and and in doing that, I found certain inconsistencies, and uh, it raised uh, uh, interesting questions that I could could then pursue. Uh, it seems to me that uh, scholars have a way of grouping things uh, in terms of, uh, of well, you know, his religious philosophy, his political struggles, his personal life. All of these become th- different chapters in a book. Typically, uh, journalists tend to think in terms of timelines uh, and and trying to figure out what happened when and what the what the uh, sequence was. We're we're perhaps a little more interested in narrative, and uh, at least I tried to be in, in in this volume. And and in doing that, I I, I thought I made some disco- some discoveries that were really interesting. That if you made yourself aware of what Gandhi was doing on a particular day and what else was going on in the society around him. It could be illuminating in surprising ways. I thought that I had an advantage as a person who had lived in both South Africa and India, not in Gandhi's day, of course, but, uh, but had a feeling for the two countries, which uh, typically the people who concentrate on his South African period don't know a whole lot about India, and the people who concentrate on his Indian period don't care a whole lot about South Africa. And, uh, and I thought the South African period was more important than, it's ge- than credit is generally given. I hope that's some kind of answer. 
I'm going to ask a question that I'm a little afraid to ask, especially after your comment that, you know, you got this Amazon review where you're being <laughs> accused of being a Gandhi hater. Lord, um, I've read an article by a journalist that stated that Gandhi's nonviolence um, approach was actually just another military strategy. How would you answer that? I thought that was rather provocative statement. Well, I'm not sure Gandhi would have disagreed with it. He would have he would have translated it into his own language. Uh, it it was as I said as I said earlier uh, uh, for him. Uh, uh, a method of mobilization and struggle as well. And he often used military metaphors in, in, when he talked about his struggles. Uh, so in that sense, uh, uh, there's something to be said for it. Uh, he was not advocating violence and, uh, uh, and never did, really. But... Uh, but he, when some occasionally he would lay out three alternatives, one being just being there and passively suffering. That uh, that for him was uh, uh, the worst choice. Another would be responding to violence with violence, and and for him the highest choice would be. Responding to violence non-violently, but but taking the blows in a way that would force the people applying them to uh, have a change of heart or would mobilize public opinion in in your in, in to meet your goals, and and he did say on a couple of occasions that uh, if you can't do the uh, Nonviolent resistance thing in the way I prescribe, it's better to be violent than just sit there and suffer. Uh, he, he uh, it was an argument. It was his way of saying that that in the best of circumstances, his nonviolent resistance could command more courage than would be seen on a battlefield, or a comparable kind of courage to what is witnessed on a battlefield. And, you know, there are, there are instances that bear this out. If you think about uh, his famous salt march in 1931, uh, it ended up with the Indians' supporters sitting uh, in roadways and uh, near beaches where they were gathering salt, a seemingly innocent uh, activity, uh, and, and being beaten over the head by, uh, by troops and police mobilized by the British. Uh, we have the example in our own country of uh, Dr. King's movement, and in particular, the march from Selma, Alabama in early 1965, in which uh, civil rights workers crossed a bridge outside of the town of Selma on their way to Montgomery, Alabama, and were set upon by state police with truncheons and uh, all, all kinds of uh, local uh, 
infuriated whites uh, who, who assaulted them violently, and they didn't respond at all. And that, that spectacle had everything to do with the passage of the major civil rights laws in the following months. So uh, uh, there are examples that Satyagraha's Gandhi imagined it worked, but he knew how difficult it was, and he only uh, actually called for it uh, on uh, several occasions in India in, in major national campaigns because he also knew that he couldn't entirely rely on his followers to respond nonviolently, and there was great danger of rioting and mayhem at, uh, at the end of a campaign. And when that did happen, as it did on several occasions, he would call off the campaigns, uh, much to the dismay of his, his uh, colleagues in the leadership who thought, oh, we've got them on the ropes, let's go for it now. But uh, he, he was consistently principled in that way. I don't know if you ever saw the cartoon in Punch that came out just after the film Gandhi appeared. No. It was an upper middle class couple leaving a, a movie theater where Gandhi, the film was playing, and one person turns to the other and says, I understand it's based on a true story. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, two quick questions, and they're sort of opposing. When you first began your remarks, you gave a series of adjectives about Gandhi, many of them very uh, complimentary, but one was like... Uh, you seem to talk about his sort of his worst trait. I forgot what term you used, if it was crank or... Um, what, what was the most disturbing side of Gandhi's character that you wrestled with as an author? And then my other kind of question with that is, since you yourself described retrobra uh, you know, reprobate, uh, how hard was it for you to get inside of the depth of his spirituality and really do justice to that as a writer since it was foreign from your own experience? I don't claim to have gotten inside the depth of his spirituality. I respect it. I understand in the way you might understand something if you were reading a textbook for a college course, uh, what some of the cultural influences are, uh, were what religious tradition he, he, traditions really in Gandhi's case, uh, propelled him. Uh, but I make a point and I think I mentioned this, of, of saying that I was uh, following him at ground level, uh, that uh, I, I, I don't see this as a, the whole Gandhi. Uh, I, I hope you'll read my book, but I hope you'll read other books, and I hope you'll read Gandhi himself. This, this sets out to do something particular to... Uh, to uh, detail the origins of his social values and his disappointment in, the, in that sphere uh, in India. But there's more to Gandhi than that. And, and uh, uh, I touch on those things, I allude to them, uh, but I, I don't claim to have fully grasped him, and I don't know anybody who would, because he, uh, he is he's such a changeable, uh, co complicated, uh, and morally serious person that you have, to, you have to be very alert to follow him and his path through life. Now, the other part of the question was why, what about him? Uh, crank was the word. And Gandhi liked 
being called a crank, by the way. He, he found that uh, amusing. Um, he, he had a wonderful puckish sense of humor. Uh, and uh, But, you know, there's a part of Gandhi that uh, can almost, you know, in his asceticism, he can almost seem a little sybaritic, a little luxurious, luxurious in his asceticism. For instance, I mean, he pays huge attention to the meager uh, food he eats uh, and chews so slowly. Uh, he, he, he requires that it be measured by ounces. He says how many ounces, uh, how long the, the different components of, uh, of it, the leaves, the vegetables, the milk, the goat's milk only, should, should be boiled and uh, at what temperature it should be served to him. And, and he, his day uh, began after meditation and prayer with a long walk. It ended uh, before meditation and prayer with a long walk. He, uh, he, he devoted an hour to an hour and a half every day to being bathed by, by attendants and, and massaged. Uh, it, it, it wasn't, he wasn't exactly, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the appropriate uh, case, St. Jerome in a cave. Uh, uh, he, he, he paid careful attention to, uh, to, uh, to every aspect of, of his uh, physical life. And I find that the use of his attendance in, in all of this uh, a little hard to enter into and, and to appreciate. It, it's Gandhi, but, uh, but it's difficult uh, for me, and as it was difficult for many of his supporters. Uh, you remarked that Gandhi, uh, it was controversial because you had talked about Gandhi and his relationship with the German architect, and that was public record. We've read that before. They were mad, whether he was celibate or not, passionate, romantic love letters to the German architect. So whether or not he, he was celibate or acted on it or not, I wouldn't necessarily say that that wasn't gay feelings because... Uh, there were passionate romantic love letters and he kept a picture of him in his bedroom and you know I'm not so, sure about the passionate but the romantic for sure yeah uh, and it, it's, um, it's nothing to be ashamed of I no, mean he just no. he was he loved this they're, man they're wonderful letters I think you the know. whole uh, it's unfortunate that Kallenbach's letters to Gandhi were destroyed by Gandhi uh, he thought that that was Kallenbach's wish he may have thought that uh, Kallenbach was destroying his letters. but uh, So we have half the correspondence. But do you think uh, this is the reason that, that you're having, that they banned it in some places in India, just in case you know, it might, he may have been or had gay feelings? They uh, accused me of using the word bisexual, which I never use in the book. It doesn't, it doesn't appear. And this is all, it's got a funny history, as many of these things that happen on the internet can have. Um, there was a review in the Wall Street Journal a few weeks ago that basically, a long review of my book by a right-wing British historian that trashed Gandhi, basically. Didn't trash my book, it was kind of, 
in its few remarks about my book, the book said it was. It said it, my book was well written and well researched. And my only failing was that I leaned over backwards to make excuses for Gandhi. And among the things it called Gandhi was a sexual weirdo. Uh, this was then. Uh, uh, you can. Uh, you, this was then. Uh, this then inspired the London Daily Mail, uh, not one of the great organs of Western thought, to uh, to to uh, to write a, a little story, tabloidy story about uh, Gandhi left his wife for a gay lover, uh, which not in itself uh, a terrible thing by our values today, perhaps, but. Uh, shocking in India. Uh, and, and the idea that a foreigner was saying these things was shocking in India. And it reached the point where last week there was a little demonstration in New Delhi and photographs put up on the internet of people uh, saying something like, hang Joseph. Uh, and there was a picture, my picture on a placard uh, uh, <laughs> carried by by a man with uh, cast markings on his forehead, uh, and with my head in a noose, my neck in a noose. Um, at this point, I ceased to find it completely amusing, but uh, but uh, uh, I, I I take your point, and uh, if the book if the book if the book had said those things. Uh, uh, I uh, I would defend you know I I would defend that point of view. I don't go that far because I conclude that these two men were extremely serious about celibs celibacy as a source of spiritual strength, and uh, and a lot of their letters and communications have to do with getting with diet. On the notion that if you you have to control one appetite in order to control the other, and and so milk is an aphrodisiac, uh, all sorts of things you wouldn't think of. Gandhi writes at one point, "Chocolate is death." Uh, uh, this is not my. F I'm not much of a chocolate eater, but this is not my favorite Gandhi. My question is about caste. Uh, I have heard it recently said by by a recent but long-term and close observer of India, including as an officer uh, in recent times of the U.S. Embassy there, that Gandhi is not revered among the OBCs and the other uh, lower oh, and lowest castes uh, and may indeed be scorned widely. And I wonder if you understand that to be true and if so, whether it is because he failed in his hopes for changing caste and that he tried and failed is seen as having reified their position in Indian society. Well, that's a very important question. And of course, the answer is very complicated, as all things are in India. But uh, uh, the Dalits, as the people who were once known as untouchables, call themselves today, do not, their, their political and intellectual leaders do not revere Gandhi in the main. There are some exceptions. They follow uh, in 
fascinating Indian figure called Ambedkar, Bimrao Ambedkar, who uh, who was the first uh, Dalit leader of national stature. And Gandhi had many interactions with Ambedkar over the years, starting in 1931 and continuing into the 40s. Sometimes they had moments of alliance or seeming alliance and coming together. Gandhi had a definite regard for Ambedkar, but they differed on various complicated constitutional issues and um, um, never really were able to solidify a common cause. Uh, They kind of crisscrossed each other quite a bit. When um, One big issue at the beginning of Ambedkar's career was the opening of Hindu temples to untouchables from which they had been traditionally barred. Gandhi kind of took the position in the 20s that was not an issue for the national movement. That was an Hindu issue for caste Hindus to settle. Uh, then in the 30s, when Gandhi switches on that, on that question and leads a movement to open the temples to caste Hindus, uh, very strenuously leads the movement, and Bedkar says, who cares about that? What we need is social upliftment and, and political rights. Uh, so they were never on the same, or seldom on the same page. And, and many Dalits today conceive themselves to be followers of Ambedkar. I think, I think time and, and uh, study will show that, that this is unfair to Gandhi and that, uh, and that, uh, that Dalits have good reason to uh, cherish the memory of both men, even though they had their difficulties with each other. Uh, And I think uh, there are some examples of uh, really first-rate Dalit writers and intellectuals who have, in recent years, taken that position. But but as you summarized it, it, that's the case. (laughs) 